Hello, and welcome to Driverless, a podcast about all things related to autonomous vehicles. I'm your host, Zach Adams. On today's episode, we have a special guest, Mark Hogue. Mark is a lawyer turned startup founder turned consultant in the autonomous vehicle space and hosts the number one result on Google for autonomous car podcasts. He can be found on all social channels at, at Autonomous Hogue and his website at markhogue.com. Our episode today covers one of the most important legal questions surrounding autonomous vehicles, and that is, what legal standards should we hold autonomous vehicles to if and when they get into accidents? We really appreciate all of you reaching out in 2018, and we hope you do the same in 2019. As always, you can reach us at at underscore driverless on Twitter or driverless at tuckerellis.com. For now, let's get rolling into 2019's first episode of Driverless. All right. Well, today's topic is what legal standard are we going to hold autonomous vehicles to when they get into accidents? And, and maybe we need to define those standards or things like that, but I'll just kind of throw that question out to you guys to start. And uh, so, so Mark, what, what are you thinking? Well, I, I'm a huge fan of taking the, uh, the simpler, easier approach to things by default. Initially, I always say it's, you know, if, it ta- if it's really complicated to explain something away, probably not the best way to do something. So I think why not start with a standard that's been with us, well, forever, the reasonable person standard and kind of go from there, at least with respect to such things as the trolley paradox, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And John, what's your take, like as far as the standards that we're holding these autonomous vehicles to when they do get in accidents? So that's, I mean, talk about a loaded question right there. Because um, <laughs> while, while I agree with Mark that, you know, we got the reasonable person standard, it it, it, people, people know what it means and we can start to apply how that's been shaped in the past to this new technology. Um, I think there's going to be two, two issues that immediately stem from that. Number one, what does a reasonable person actually mean, even if we agree that that's a standard, when we're talking about something that's not actually a person? Um, you're talking about like a neural network running. Yeah. Are are we really talking about a reasonable person or or a reasonable neural network? And I I think what we'll probably see is a a two phased um, attack on litigation or two, a two staged approach to this litigation. We're going to have a long period of time where we're sharing the road. We human drivers will be sharing the road with these, um, the, the artificial intelligence that's driving these cars. And I would envision plaintiff's attorneys when it suits them, will want to argue that this neural network was defective because it did something that your average person wouldn't. And in that case, the reasonable person standard will actually be that of a reasonable person. Later on, though, I think this will, number one, be be something we could see even while we're sharing the roads, but certainly later on when when it's more just these autonomous vehicles that are on the road, it's you, you might see a morph of what's the reasonable neural network standard in there. And there you're more comparing this neural network was trained to do this and that was wrong. It should have been trained to do that. And if it would have had that training or that decision-making um, in, in place, then it would have avoided this accident. Okay. So what long-winded way of saying that I think we're all kind of in agreement, and, and that's certainly my thought too, that, we're going to have some version of kind of this, the reasonably prudent person standard applied to these vehicles. But well, I, I guess John, a reasonably prudent oh, something. Yeah. A reasonably something, prudent something. Right. That's a great point. Exactly. Getting real so, technical here. 
Yeah, Go also, guys, I have to say, there's also this issue that, um, you know, when you start talking about a reasonable person, this is obviously a very culture, even maybe demographic specific thing. So MIT ran this study, uh, what, in November, I think, of last year, uh, which showed that there's a stark difference as between, in general, Western societies and, say, Asian societies. So, for instance, specifically, generally speaking, they found that folks, say, in in the in the west tended to prioritize for instance children over the elderly uh in the trolley paradox whereas say in certain asian countries <clears throat> it was precisely the opposite right there's a tremendous amount of respect for the elders so even if you were to apply that standard again that would be super culture specific then i think i think that's right and i think um you know we keep bringing up this trolley paradox so let's let's kind of jump to that <laughs> so we probably dive in and define it yeah <laughs> yeah i think i think rather than us kind of repeatedly referring to it let's just jump into that and then we can kind of work backwards so trolley paradox i think we're all really familiar with um it's an ethical dilemma that's you know been going back now decades maybe even centuries i think it was in the 1950s it started um and one of you guys can fact check me on that but i think mark what you're referring to is kind of this you know when we're forced to, cho to choose between saving two different lives, uh, how do we prioritize which life we should choose to save? And how does that apply in a greater sense to autonomous vehicles that through their programming, uh, some may say would have to make that decision. And I think, you know, not to bury the lead here, but I think all of us are kind of in agreement that uh, we don't really think this problem even applies to autonomous vehicles. Is that right? Right. So this, this debate, so, uh, well, this belongs in a philosophy classroom with the, with the door locked and the key thrown away. It's a fascinating, <laughs> amazingly entertaining thing to discuss. Here's why I really firmly believe um, at best, it has no place in a real world discussion of autonomous vehicles. And at worst, it's a really dangerous red herring that risks kind of hindering the rollout of autonomous cars. So first of all, you look, as a guy with a background in sort of pre-engineering track courses, in undergrad, I'm a huge fan of studying corner cases, fringe cases. You need to do that. I get it. Um, there's a difference between a corner case and uh, something that just doesn't happen in the real world. I mean, for instance, when was the last time any of you had to make this decision on the fly? Do I run over grandpa or a little kid? It just doesn't happen. Alternatively, if it did happen, you, the human driver or the autonomous car will have already failed in the first place. And finally, even if you were to program a car with such sort of decision-making, this is basically giving it, it's basically programming it with ethics, with morality. That is itself per se wrong. Sure. And right. No, go for it, John. Uh, well, and I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it slightly differently, but, but I 100% agree with, with everything Mark just said. And this is why Frankly, this should just be put by the wayside, not just because it's, it's one of the perfect examples of, of the perfect being the enemy of the good. You know, this calls into question aspects of an accident that we never take into account now. Uh, nobody ever thinks when you're getting in an accident, let me stop and analyze uh, what, what the people I could hit look like and make a decision based on that. It's just two split second. So why are we using this? Should as a I reason? hit this person or hit that person? Right. <laughs> well, so and why John. are we using this as a reason to to? Uh, why are we suddenly injecting this and asking autonomous vehicles to do something that we don't, and and only accepting them when they do something that we don't? That's, that's number one. And number two, as Mark said, this is a morality question. Not only is it a morality question, it's a morality question that we don't have an answer to. That's the whole point of it. It's it belongs in a classroom where you can have differences of opinion based on who you are or what 
what your cultural background is, and as Mark said, whether a particular uh, society or culture might value or respect their elders more than children. But if we can't answer it on a moral level, why did we even start down this path of we need to answer it before this technology can be rolled out and mass accepted? And just a real quick point that I wanted to throw out there, John, you, you said something that kind of made me laugh. I mean, right now you're in the middle of trial prep. You're getting ready to do a trial over in uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Could you imagine arguing to a trial? And Mark, you're a lawyer too, so I'm sure all of us can appreciate this. Could you imagine arguing to a jury? Listen, not only did my guy, you know, act reasonably, I mean, he hit the right person, you know, like he, he <laughs> killed the person we'd want to kill. I, I just can't even imagine the look on a jury's face if that was part of our defense, you know? That's um, hilarious. Yeah, so I think you guys are absolutely right. It's this a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see how this plays out. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I guess I guess the one thing I'll add there, though, is this notion of the old, uh, I always forget the name of the case from law school days. You guys can remind me probably the whole emergency doctrine thing, right? Like the, the, the taxi driver had a gun pulled on him, so he swears onto the sidewalk, disarms the guy when he crashes into a wall. I think he injures a pedestrian. The question is, was this a reasonable thing to do? Would somebody in a similar situation have done that? Do you guys remember this? I, I do remember the case. I can't remember the name though. Yeah, totally. So, so basically for me though, this is kind of what it comes down to because you're absolutely right. Obviously it wouldn't be a situation where somebody thinks consciously. That's precisely the point. It's a thing that one does subconsciously. They just act on impulse. And, and that's where the whole emergency doctrine comes into play, right? Is that what somebody would do? My whole point was, even if you wanted to apply this, this principle generally to autonomous cars, at least here in the U.S., it's my, I think it's the case that generally speaking, most drivers, drivers will do anything they can to avoid hitting a pedestrian or a bicyclist. That's just, I think, the ordinary reflex of most drivers. Um, but again, that was the point of the emergency doctrine in the first place. So theoretically, it could apply. That said, for all the reasons we've discussed already, it mustn't apply to autonomous cars. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, all right, so now that we've dealt with the trolley paradox, let's, let's rewind a little bit, because uh, we've kind of gotten that out of the way, and talk a little bit about this reasonable blank standard. So reasonable person, reasonable neural network, reasonable autonomous vehicle, whatever. So how do we think, how could this apply to autonomous vehicles as you know, we start seeing them getting accidents with each other or accidents with human drivers, things like that. Um, what do you guys think the application of that standard is going to look like? I, I think it's going to evolve as we see cases start down this road. Um, you know, and in different cases, it's, it's, it's going to evolve differently. Um, you know, we've seen already in, in some of the cases out there where the accidents that we see with autonomous vehicles are going to be different than the accidents that we've typically seen with human drivers. That's a good thing. Um, but it, it's going to require society to kind of redefine and, and reaccept how we view car accidents. Um, and it, it becomes tough because nobody wants to sit there and say, you know, I'm going to put my loved ones into this vehicle. And whereas maybe there's a one in 10,000 chance that a drunk driver hits them. Um, there's a one in a million chance now that nothing's going to happen. It's just going to decide to merge into the side of a semi and nobody can control that. But, um, it's, it's still, I think people in society are, are wired to, to have a hard time with, with their lack of control in that situation. And this is what makes it tough, right? Is with autonomous vehicles, we're already kind of seeing, uh, even though the statistics are starting to show, you know, 
well, and they've been showing that you know these these cars are able to be able to drive safer uh, than humans in a lot of different ways. But like John just said, even though the statistics bear out on the side of autonomous vehicles, the types of accidents we're seeing are the accidents that human drivers aren't used to getting into. So the the conversation turns from a well, okay, this car you know may have saved my life. It's hard to prove a false negative, is I guess what I'm saying, because while the car may have saved your life in a bunch of little ways you didn't see, whenever it does merge into that semi or whenever it does go into the back of a fire truck, the first thing we're going to say is, well, these cars can't be safe because I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. So this car clearly is not as good of a driver as me. And, and that sets up a, a really bad precedent, which I think is part of the reason why, uh, and I think you guys are both kind of getting at this earlier, the transition isn't going to be, you know, how do we apply the reasonable person standard to autonomous vehicles? It's going to be what is the new reasonable standard going to be for autonomous vehicles? Because they're going to have to compare it against each other as opposed to being compared against a person. And obviously there's a bunch of PR implications there too of how do you kind of educate the public and get them ready for that. But I do think you're right, John, that it's not going to start off there, but I think that's got to be the end goal is that we've got to look at these cars and this industry as a whole and say, what would a reasonable autonomous vehicle have done in this situation? One with the appropriate amount of training, one with the appropriate amount of uh, you know, disengagements, things like that. What would it have done? And how does that compare to the car that was in this accident? Uh, do you guys disagree or? Well, <clears throat> no, I mean, I, I have a few kind of rambling thoughts on this. There's a lot of really good points that were made. In general, I agree so far with, with where this is headed. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan and always drawing analogies <clears throat> to the aviation world. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from there. After all, we've had largely automated flight for decades. Um, to, the, to the point of safety, to the point of a person getting into a vehicle, and I think what you're alluding to is kind of blindly trusting that the computer will get you from A to B safely. That is effectively what we do whenever we get into an airplane. The end game, of course, for autonomous cars, and I've become pretty fond of saying this lately, is once you're talking about a fully level five autonomous vehicle, I would ask you, what is the difference really from the passenger's point of view, whether they're getting into a tube with wings or a box with wheels in which they are literally just along for the ride? I mean, because again, to the point of safety, uh, your chances of dying in a car today, one in 5,000, dying in an airplane, one in 11 million, to put it a different way, you're more likely to be struck by lightning two times in the, t in the same spot than you are to be killed in an airplane. Um, right. So, so, so I guess where I'm going with this is simply that you're right. I think it is partly a matter of uh, transitioning kind of, but I think it's going to require a lot of education and people just getting used to the idea the same way they did with aircraft. And to that end, um, there's a new sort of group that's been put together called PAVE uh, from a bunch of Silicon Valley companies. I think it stands for the Path to Autonomous Vehicle Education. It's effectively a lobbying group, I think, even if they say they're not, but whatever. But the point is, they, I think that their mission is largely to help educate the public because there's going to be a real need for that. No, I think that's right. And that's actually something, you know, that's, I think, kind of a, a brainchild of AV 3.0, where, you know, we're starting to see, uh, and I think, I think, Mark, you, you perfectly put it as, uh, they may not say they're lobbyists, but that's kind of what they are. And that's not necessarily a bad thing right now, because I think- No, I think there's actually a real need for lobbyists in the AV space. Absolutely. 100%. Especially, especially kind of filling out that, the education component, which is something that we need them to do. Um, and I think, I think you're right that, uh, we, we need to kind of shift. I think the problem is, you know, whenever we talk about aviation versus uh, driving right now, there's an accessibility to driving that we, we have because all of us have been doing it for so long that we don't have to aviation. 
And I think that the point. change, right. And I think the change you're right though, Mark, is to eventually make, uh, you know, crashes with autonomous vehicles so rare that they're similar to airplane crashes where it's kind of one of those things where you're not even really worried about it. And on top of that, you know, I, I took a flight in this morning from New York, no part of me, uh, at 6 20 AM wanted to get behind the, you know, uh, you know, get in the cockpit and drive the plane. I was very happy to not put, not only put my life in the hands of uh, the airline, but the pilot. I'm sure your fellow passengers were rather pleased as well. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Especially after working on that. I'm I'm sure they were thrilled I wasn't piloting. Well, hey, here's a weird hypothetical. If I could just interject this real quick, um, just for both of you guys to think about. Uh, It's something that kind of crossed my mind recently. What would, um, I don't know what, uh, you know, I don't know what word to use best here. What would annoy you or upset you or anger you the most? Being in an airplane accident caused by pilot error, like say you get into like a little Cessna or a Piper or whatever, mm-hmm. and a pilot, due to pilot error, the plane crashes on landing, um, or being in say a 777 and the plane crashes on landing due to autopilot error. What would bother you more? Or, for, or alternatively, what would bother public perception more? You know, off the cuff, I would say that, and maybe this is because I'm, you know, obviously really interested in the autonomous vehicle space. I think the pilot error would bother me more only because I'm of the mindset just from having, you know, and, and I'd say I'm a little educated in the aviation space, but by no means an expert. Um, my understanding is that these planes at this point do a lot of the work for the pilot. And so I think you'd have to kind of explain why the pilot was actually taking an active role in flying the aircraft for me to understand why he committed the error. But um, from a PR standpoint, I actually think it's the opposite where I think people similar to autonomous vehicles would be much more alarmed if they found out that a plane's autopilot caused an, you know, uh, and, and I don't know what kind of crash we're talking about, but caused a malfunction or caused a, a situation. I think they'd be much more scared hearing that an autopilot did that than pilot because I think, you know, a pilot, well, that's one pilot. You know, we, we can get rid of that. We can fire him or, you know, whatever. But autopilot, that, that kind of, if I'm if someone who flies quite a bit, that's really scaring me because I'm saying this is kind of systematic. This is not just a singular issue. This could be something that I've really got to worry about for the next plane I step on or the next plane uh, a loved one steps on, something like that. So, right, so, so we're basically give... saying we're holding these to a higher standard is what we're saying. Well, absolutely. Let me, let me give an answer that is really going to shock people for a lawyer to give this answer to other lawyers. It depends. Oh <laughs> it, it, it depends. You don't um, say, John. Which is, well, think about it. If, if the pilot error that you're talking about is this man or woman was drunk as a skunk and that's why they got in it, that's going to really upset people. Just like drunk driving crashes really ex- upset people probably more than autonomous vehicle accidents will. And that's why we see uh, the case for safety can be so easily made with autonomous vehicles because it's eliminating things like drunk, distracted driving. Um, so it's really going to depend on, on, on things like that. No, I think that's, that's right. And a very good point. And, and I think something that Mark and I were getting into right before you, you weighed in with your uh, typical lawyer answer was, I, I think you know, Mark asked the million dollar question, are we going to hold these vehicles or do we hold autopilot and uh, airplanes to a higher standard? And at least for me, it's an emphatic yes, only because you know, it, we want them to replace human drivers or, you know, human pilots, things like that. In order to right. do the that, the end we, game must be 100% perfect. 
Exactly. And that's exactly right. Uh, or or know, obviously as close to 100 as possible. That's never going to happen. But yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. But certainly better than what we have now. Otherwise, why right. are we going to make the infrastructure exactly. changes or the investments, etc.? Um, well, no, that, I think that's right. Oh, that raises it, yeah. an interesting point, not to, to derail us too much. But so we were talking about the reasonable person standard before. And the, the interesting thing is when these cases are brought, while you may hear from the plaintiff side that they're bringing suit or faulting somebody because uh, a, an autonomous vehicle didn't act like a reasonable person would have, that's probably going to be in the shape of a product liability suit. And it, you're really talking not about what a reasonable person would have done, but what would a reasonable manufacturer or a reasonable designer have done in producing that neural network? Um, so, so you're not actually in the end talking about reasonable person so much as reasonable manufacturer and how does that maybe shift the focus to training and things like that and away from the just easy nuts and bolts, what would a human have done in this scenario? It might cross over and how does the training end, end up at the right result? But the other interesting thing that, that popped into my mind as we're talking about this, and especially with some of the comments that, that Mark made about the trolley problem is really a, a failure of the AV if we got to that point at all. Do you guys think that in the end, we'll see a lot of this stuff and, and have to talk about reasonable person and a problem with the design? Or are these going to be so good that the, the, the lawsuits that we do see, will be fighting about manufacturing defects? Because the problem is the hardware didn't pick up something it should have and that led to a manufacturing problem or an error in how it read something, not that there's a physical decision that was made that was incorrect. So, so this, is, this is the perfect segue, I think, to what I think is the necessary end game. Um, whenever you're talking about something which has all sorts of alternate explanations or arguments or ways of looking at a problem, what does that mean? It means you need to define a set of standards, period. I mean, this is exactly why we have things like IEEE for engineers. This is why, uh, as I discussed today on my podcast, actually, we've got the German automakers saying, hey, we've got to put a consortium together because nobody knows what the heck is going on and how to do things. Really, they say it's about, oh, we should you know, share development costs because, oh, yeah, autonomous cars are way harder than rocket science after all. <laughs> but really, it's just about covering themselves for liability because they want to be able to say, hey, look, who cares what went wrong? We did what the standard said we had to do. And again, looking at aviation, this is why we've had such a precipitous drop in aviation incidents since the FAA rolled out. I think it was 56, 1956 when, it, when, when the FAA went live. And it's why all the systems and aircraft now are like doubly, triply, quadruply redundant. It's why, as I love to quote over and over again, the statistical likelihood of a twin engine, of a dual engine failure on a twin engine aircraft is essentially mathematically zero or stated alternatively, the, the, uh, the mean time to failure of both engines is basically infinite. I mean, yeah, this is like, I mean, if, if ever there was a, I mean, not since Porsche cup holders have we seen yeah. such over-engineered <laughs> awesomeness as aircraft. <laughs> so, you know, and this is all because of the FAA setting a set of standards. We're going to need an FAVA, a Federal Autonomous Vehicle Administration, mark my words. And this is where for me, the interesting thing is you're, you're really hitting to the intersection of practicality and what um, lobbyists are going to be willing to accept. Because we saw at the end of 2018, when there was a real push to get some federal AV legislation through, one of the largest outspoken groups against the legislation um, holding things up was the AAJ, a, a large um, plaintiff's organization that was saying they had real problems 
um, with a number of aspects of what the legislation meant for the future of litigation related to it. So uh, while I, I don't necessarily disagree that, that things would be a lot smoother with an FAVA or something like it, um, I'm, I'm curious if we can ever actually get there with such powerful lobbying groups um, clearly on the radars of significant portions of Congress to shut down anything that approaches that. Well, and I think, John, you know, something else that uh, you, you kind of raise, I think we're all in agreement. and Mark put it well, that we're all kind of in agreement that these, these standards would really help. We want to get to the point of the Porsche cup holders or the, you know, airplanes where, <laughs> where we're not worried about this stuff going wrong. But I, I think another, you know, practical aspect of this is we've got to kind of wrestle with the fact that with aviation, you're primarily dealing with interstate travel, right? Most people get, I mean, unless you're in California or Texas, most people are getting in a plane expecting to land in a different state. That just inherently lends itself more to federal regulation, which, you know, also helps because then, you know, you don't have, oh man, I can only fly this airliner because they're usually safe. You know, we have federal oversight of all airlines. Uh, the problem I think that we're going to see, not only with, you know, John, what you're kind of referring to is like lobbyists and things like that. Most people gain in their car aren't leaving the state. And so that's kind of more interesting. And so the, the thing I'm kind of already kind of seeing coming is the federal government, and, and there's, they obviously have the means to do this, so it's, it's not impossible, Harold, but they're going to have to kind of legislate around, they're going to be regulating a primarily intrastate activity. And, you know, while I don't imagine that a lot of states are going to push back because the states are going to be happy to offload the uh, work and the blame to the federal government, I do think there's going to be some tension there because we're, that's the, the key differentiator between these two industries as opposed as to the way regulation rolls out on them. And the federal government, while they can do it, they're going to have to find a creative way to make that happen. So when that first lawsuit comes challenging the constitutionality of whatever you know, a body is regulating them or whatever rules they promulgate, they're going to have to be ready for that. And I think so that's I've got something. You oh, go for yeah. it, Mark. Sorry. Well, I've got your creative answer right here. Ready? Mm -hmm. um, you're, what you're saying, I agree with it as of today, right now. Thing sure. is, though, um, it presupposes that the future remains a future of privately owned vehicles. Remember, it's, it is necessarily the case that for an autonomous vehicle future to occur, to become a thing, then it must also be the case that we move to a car sharing platform. Once we end up with a car sharing future, which admittedly is several decades down the road, I get that, okay, fair sure. enough. But once we get there, <clears throat> then it's necessarily going to be the case that you've got these vehicles which aren't necessarily still just intrastate, and rather they are interstate. And effectively, what you're alluding to is obviously interstate commerce clause, and that's where you're going right. to end up. Where now you've got these these companies. I think there's going to be a lot of white labeling, where like some companies produces a bunch of autonomous pods. Essentially, you know, as an aside, people are saying, oh, things like you know, freeway side hotel uh, motels, like Motel Six, will go out of business. No, they're, not. <laughs> they're, gonna, they're just going to build Motel Six branded autonomous pod cars. Um, sure you know, airlines will have extensions of their air fleet on the ground the way that Lufthansa does in Europe now with big coach buses. My point is, when you have an autonomous future which is shared, um, that skirts that argument entirely. You will have interstate autonomous pod cars. And I think you're, I think you're right, but I think, uh, like you said, the, the key part of that is when, right? Because we're asking for regulations now. And right now, if we had that kind of uh, system with the autonomous car, like if we had that business model where they're fleets and their own, then yeah, we can obviously get to the Interstate Commerce Act. We can, you know, that provides an easy fix. This is almost going to be, you know, proactive 
right? We're asking for them to do it now before that exists. And again, I do think there are other ways they can do it, but these are just things that the companies I mean, you could argue, have to wrestle with. You could, you, you could certainly argue that, hey, the cars are being built in state X and they're being shipped across the state Y and Z. Uh, that's effectively interstate commerce. So sure, <laughs> occasionally being used. <laughs> you're right. No, and that's, and, and again, like I said, there are ways to do it. The thing, like I said, I, I guess what I'm getting at though is these are issues that lobbyists and companies are going to have to deal with. And, no, I mean, and there are yeah. solutions for, to be clear, there are definitely solutions, but Absolutely. I think that's the differentiator between this and airlines. Um, but let's, let's, you, get you have to understand my and, angle from all this doing startups for eight years. I always try to skirt the problem, just go straight to the solution. Just, I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, well and, and another aspect of this too, I'll, I'll argue against my own point here. It's not as though um, the federal government isn't already regulating cars. They, they are, you know, there's whole agencies devoted to everything from right. what goes into Absolutely. a car sure. to the highways, to, you know, all these things. And, they, and those agencies are already regulating autonomous vehicles, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, the question, I think, will be just, will it get to a point where, where society is willing to accept such a pervasive regulation like we see on the airline side that we get into issues of preemption and things like that? Or will it be this kind of either states doing it in conjunction with the federal government, but staying away from still state tort law actions that can be brought and things like that? That's that's where I think the rubber hits the road. Um, no pun intended on this. <laughs> that was really cheesy, John. Real yeah. cheesy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so okay, let, let's all right. So let's say that we do get this, and I think FAVA is just like a fun, you know, pack. We're just gonna kind of roll with that. So our hypothetical. Fava, as I'll call it, comes out. What kind of rules do you guys expect them to kind of get get out there right away as it applies to kind of the, the topic of today, whereas, you know, we're talking about kind of the standard that we're holding autonomous vehicles to when they do get an accident. I mean, do you think they're just going to come out and say, here's kind of the tort claims, here are, you know, some of your uh, product liability claims, whatever, or do you think it's going to be more nuanced, less nuanced? I mean, what, you know, AV 3.0 was so kind of ambiguous. Uh, I mean, you had federal government encouraging states to, you know, work actively with manufacturers and manufacturers to let them know what they need to make this, um, you know, more commonplace. I'm just kind of wondering if this federal organization does exist, what are they going to do? What's their first big move? I mean, I I think I'm afraid I might be misunderstanding your question, but if I'm not, then my answer is simply this. I think they're not going to sort of try to zero in on what kind of claims can be brought, obviously, but rather they're just going to say, hey, Here's, you know, if you're building an, sort of like building an airplane, if you're going to build this thing, it's got to mm-hmm. conform in X, Y, and Z ways. If it doesn't, then you've just failed. You can't produce your vehicle. End of story. Uh, alternatively, if you have produced it, and if you have satisfied those requirements, and if something goes wrong, then the question becomes, well, what went wrong, how and why, et cetera, et cetera. So one great sort of example that I just love to throw out there real quickly here is, uh, so there was a 777, a Boeing 777 incident at London's Heathrow Airport a few years ago, where, and just, I, I'm specifying the model because that's like pretty much the safest aircraft in the sky, statistically speaking. Um, mm-hmm. And <clears throat> just before landing, they couldn't spool up the engines. And so it landed short of the runway. The issue became, you know, sort of who dropped the ball, where, why, and how. Everything conformed. There was not, you know, they couldn't find any, anything that had lapsed anywhere at all. So they narrowed it down to an issue with fuel freezing in the lines. Well, they, tra- they were able to trace the fuel all the way back to the refinery itself um, just to make sure nothing had gone wrong. And that's mm-hmm. kind of my point. And this is all because of the FAA, you know, because they're able to trace everything back. So it's a matter of setting standards and ensure that if anything goes wrong, let's see where along the chain it failed. Well, 
and I think that's an interesting point. So yes, you did understand my question correctly. And actually that's where I was going with it. So great setup, Mark. Uh, can tell you've been okay, good. for a while. <laughs> um, so I think you're right. I think that the, what, what this fictitious organization would be doing is saying, you know, here's what you need in order to have a uh, autonomous vehicle that's approved by the federal government. I think then what gets interesting is how do they decide what those standards are, right? Like, you know, what type of neural network are you using? What type of LIDAR, if you're using LIDAR, are you using? What, you know, that gets real interesting. Uh, and I think the thing that's a little more difficult here is you have so many different approaches being taken right now by these car companies, uh, as opposed to, I think, and again, I don't pretend to be an aviation expert, but whenever, you know, aviation was really coming on, I think a lot of that was, uh, you know, people were looking for kind of any way to make it happen, um, similar to the autonomous vehicle, but everyone kind of knew what was going to be required to kind of get these things up in the air. And so I think it was a little easier to relegate or to regulate because there's more of a streamlined approach. Here, I mean, you've got some people using LiDAR, some people not using LiDAR. Uh, I mean, everything well what, one person not using lidar <laughs> That's, yeah sure, sure one person not using lidar is who weirdly coincidentally seems to have at least produce the best thing for the public obviously to our listeners obviously we're talking about tesla and elon musk right. and, and that's and that's what i think is fun and, and i guess you're right that one person not using lidar but a big person you know a big company not using lidar and so right. it's gonna be interesting to see how are they deciding which standards should apply and then how did you know Enforcing those, John, you're so, right that there should be preemption issues, but yeah, sorry, this long-winded answer well, or question. No, 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 it, it. this is really, really good stuff because, I mean, uh, well, look, there, there's again yet another analogy in uh, so, so when uh, Airbus started flying with fly-by-wire, uh, this is a system which basically um, replaces the ordinary mechanical or hydraulic systems to control the aircraft uh, control surfaces and even the engines with electronic systems. So it's all done through a computer, right? Well, this was initially uh, brought to the public, you know, civilian aviation from the military world. The question became, are these as safe as, let alone are they safer, but are they as safe as uh, conventional control mechanisms? And they had mm -hmm. to prove that indeed it was. That, that's sort of what came about. So, so basically where I'm going with this is, look, if Tesla want to keep, can, you know, not using LIDAR, that's fine. But if and when we have such a, a set of standards that are imposed on the industry generally, they will have to prove, hey, look, here's some experiments, here's some tests. We are just as good, if not better, than LIDAR. And so here's what I'd wonder about that. My question, I guess, is do you, you know, and, and then we're just kind of all talking hypothetically here, but it would be interesting to see if the, this fictitious regulating body is able to say, okay, no, you need to have LIDAR. And then you have a Tesla who, again, is, you know, making a product that a lot of consumers really like and it's very publicly, um, well, it's very public, we'll say that much. And, you know, what if they kind of come and they say, listen, look at our disengagement report. We're doing fine without LIDAR. I mean, and this is where maybe the lobbyists get involved. But, I mean, how do you, I guess, I'm wondering how they'll enforce these different uh, standards. And, and Mark, maybe you have a ref another reference to the aviation industry whenever it seems like one product is doing fine uh, without following those. So I look, short answer is, um, I don't know. <laughs> the longer answer is, is <laughs> I think it will come down to a set of rigorous tests and experiments. You, you're just gonna have to show that, in, you know, a zillion different scenarios that you've got one vehicle here equipped with LiDAR, one vehicle here equipped simply with computer vision cameras. 
Mm -hmm. You're going to have to show that it performs at least as well. I, I realized something funny, though. Uh, this whole discussion, again, it's kind of presupposing something, namely that, that the LiDAR is, in fact, already the superior baseline. I mean, for all we know, uh, by the time this happens, it could be the inverse, where suddenly, sure. oh, wow, look, Elon was right. <laughs> you know, cameras have eventually become better than LiDAR. Now we got to prove that LiDAR is better. So you're going to have to have some baseline against, every, against which everything is tested, I, I think, is what's going to happen. No, well, and that, that's right. That's a point that I think strikes in favor of, of rather than having a, a federal agency handle this, maybe what arises is more of just an, an industry body. Um, some, I'm, I'm thinking of like UL standards or ANSI standards or things like that, where it's just a consortium of, of all different aspects of, of the industry that come together to promulgate standards. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and not that those always move quickly either, but I think that, that to the extent that we could have a, a body regulating this that can react as nimbly as possible, I think that would really benefit the industry. The, the downside of that is I think the more you get away from a federal agency blessing what you do, you might lose out on the litigation side, say that conformance with standards is just an affirmative defense or something that you could argue at trial, but not a dead bang winner um, in the same way that uh, government compliance might be. But maybe that strikes the appropriate balance that we're trying to find here. Well, and Absolutely. John, and, they, and they're not mutually exclusive things. They can coexist. Right, right. That's true. Something else that's interesting that, you know, you just sparked my thought on uh, based on a case I'm working on, but John, it's something that you just said was really funny. You know, with an industry standard, it's not a, it's not a dead bang winner, as you put it. It's not an affirmative defense. You can say, look, because we did this, we're totally fine. And Mark, you just put a, made a really good point that these things can coexist at the same time. But it is a little interesting to see, you know, kind of the tension of what these companies are going to want. On one hand, you know, industry standards are a little better because, again, you don't have to, you know, uh, they're not mandated, right? You don't have to conform to them. You can kind of do your own thing, and that's fine. On the other hand, a lot of companies that are looking at kind of um, their spreadsheets and seeing what their liability exposure is going to be in the future, they may be saying, well, actually, you know, federal regulation is a little better because when we do have that affirmative defense, we are able to say, listen, we, we followed the guidelines. We did exactly what we were supposed to do that we, you know, did everything that we could in, according, or in, in accordance with the federal regulating body here. And, you know, this was unforeseeable. And again, this kind of loops back into our reasonable autonomous vehicle standard. But it is interesting to see how those tensions will play out. Because on one hand, I think you'll want the nimbleness and the flexibility of you know, industry standards. But on the other hand, it is nice having that safety net of federal regulations. Well, there are some practical considerations there too. I mean, while technically you're right, if you're making a widget and there's an ANSI standard that applies to it, can you make an, a widget that doesn't conform to that? Um, sure, but you might not be able to sell it to any retailer to put it on their Bingo, shelves. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, so practically speaking, you might be able to do it, but you'll never be able to sell it to anybody unless it conforms with that standard. Right. And, and I think we all are in agreement that uh, these companies do not want something they can't sell. Right. And, and let's, I mean, you know, I, I was just Googling it to be certain. Indeed, the FAA, I was off by two years. The FAA was formed in 1958. I mean, I think where this discussion is headed is sort of, you know, even if this is the right thing to do to have a federal uh, administration, um, you know, wh when could this possibly occur? And I think, uh, indeed, there's so many unknowns that, of course, it's going to take a while. I, I, I would guess that the, re that the reason why the FAA didn't come around until 1958, which was what, 40 years at least since commercial aviation became a thing and certainly 50 years since even airmail was a thing. Right. I would suggest it didn't, 
the FAA didn't get formed because frankly, nobody figured out the things that had to be regulated, standardized and how so to do them, you know? So I think of course it's gonna take some time. I think, um, you know, this is not gonna happen overnight, obviously. I'm just hoping sooner rather than later would probably be optimal. And, and I think you're right that it'll be sooner rather than later, if for no other reason than I, I, I think the pace of innovation is a little quicker now than it was, uh, you know, what, 70 years ago, uh, <laughs> yeah. 60 years ago. So I think we'll be well, maybe, maybe not right now with the shutdown, but ordinarily <laughs> <laughs> the trough of disillusionment yeah. continues. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> Trump of disillusionment is more like it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think, uh, I, I think this is something we're going to be building towards and, and the question probably is you know when not if but um it will be interesting to kind of see and one of the other things i kind of want to touch on before we get out of here is you know what are the policy implications are going to result from uh, the fava uh applying this reasonable autonomous vehicle standard i mean do you think that there's going to be other ripples as to the way that manufacturers deal with software engineers or things like that I mean, there's going to be a lot of urban changes if you want to touch on that for a bit. It's going to be a massive, talking about like massive infrastructure, urban, uh, infrastructure, but also road use cases and even curbside use. I was speaking with an engineer at the uh, Department of Transportation. I think it was down in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and, and this is a huge discussion, right? And it fundamentally comes down to this notion again of, you know, whether or not we've got a privately owned future, hopefully not, or a car sharing future. In the end, we're going to have the Lyft Uber. Uh, side effect, the secondary effect of more cars on the road rather than less, which is fine if indeed they're full of people. But if you've got a bunch of empty pods running around, this is making things worse, not better. So what do you do? Well, geez, I don't know, the T word, tax. I mean, there's mm -hmm. going to have to be a way to penalize empty vehicles. And so insofar as sort of keeping roads free, curbside, curbsides free, that kind of thing, it turns out it's a really complicated thing to get right without, you know, ruining a lot of things. Well, and that's going to be, I mean, and I, I really don't want us to get on this topic because I, I just, I right. don't, uh, but, <laughs> but I feel like that gets into the whole too. You're going to have the get off my lawn people being like back in my day, we didn't have to pay taxes to use public, you know, whatever. Totally. And, and that's right. a whole nother discussion that I don't think any of us three want to get into. Um, but no, no, it, we, yeah, we shouldn't get into it. No, no. But to your point about policy, it's, 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 there's going to be a lot of broad sweeping implications is my point. Sure. And, and I think you're right about the, uh, the curb use thing is interesting, right? Because, I mean, in an autonomous vehicle world where we can, you know, one of the things I saw recently is that retailers now are kind of experimenting with, you know, how would it look for these pop-up shops that we're seeing in different areas? How would it work if, you know, your pop-up shop was, you know, that was your entire shop. It wasn't a pop-up shop. It was just, this is my box on wheels that, you know, is in this part of Manhattan, you know, in the morning and then we're getting the Lower East Side later in the afternoon. I mean, you're basically talking about a food truck. Exactly. Right. And, <laughs> and I mean, the thing that's kind of interesting about this is, you know, with these curb uses and these taxes, uh, I mean, why, you know, why shouldn't we tax those companies the same way that we would tax them if they were holding, you know, real estate or things like that. But then, you know, I, I mean, it's just, it's a slippery slope. And, and the thing is, we're going to have to figure these things out um, so that we can find a way to generate the revenue necessary to create a better infrastructure for these vehicles you know so totally. that, i mean ironically it's going to be the inverse ironically it's going to be a tax incentive to subscribe to us to a car sharing model mm -hmm. until it doesn't work in which case it's going to do a 180 <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then all of a sudden tesla will be smiling as we all go to dealerships <laughs> to buy cars right um, exactly <laughs> all right well listen 
I, is there anything else you guys want to hit before we get out of here? I know that we're all kind of pressed for time today, but uh, I, you know, this has been awesome. So if there's anything else you guys want to talk about, let's, uh, let's do it now. It's pretty amazing. You get three lawyers in a room. Isn't that entertaining? And I think for the most part, incredible. You all more or less agreed with one another. This has got to be a first. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's good that. or bad. <laughs> I, I like to think it's good. I like to think it means that there we're all Me uh, very intelligent in this space and very reasonable people. <laughs> all right. Sure. Well, uh, thanks so much, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, this awesome. is a lot Thank of fun. Thank you both. Well. Yeah. For sure.